All right, well, here we go. We'll see logical help, but uh, we are not creators. We are just managers of things that have already been created, and uh, we do not have the power to say, let there be a video display. But uh, it's strange to think that we're using this uh, projector, and it's the old-fashioned way to do it. Still seems pretty technologically advanced to me. So um, <clears throat> let's hope it uh, let's hope it all holds together and works. Well, welcome to our study on church history. Um, I'm very uh, excited to be able to walk through this with you guys, Lord willing, over the next three months, and uh, we'll see uh, we'll see where it goes. Of course, you know, about halfway into this, you're all going to be going, "Wow, this is what we put up with for him to go to school for three years." He doesn't know anything, and so uh, let's just start off with the acknowledgement that uh, I'm I'm not the brightest bear in the bunch, and uh, but I think uh, it will be profitable for us. All right. Um, <clears throat> today we are going to be going over this little book that we passed out a little while back, uh, the book by Beaky and Haken. Why should I be interested in church history? We have a few introductory things we want to do first, but. Uh, We'll actually get to the bigger book uh, next uh, next Lord's Day, and uh, so we will uh, actually kind of have some assignments. I've got a uh, like a, a course overview or syllabus or whatever to give to you at the end today, and we'll talk about that just for a few minutes. And uh, but today we kind of enter this uh, study uh, church history. Notice the subtitle: the story of God's people in the world trying not to be of the world. As I read through church history, um, the thought that we are in the world but not of the world is uh, idyllic. Uh, we're hoping for that. We're hoping to not be of the world. But sadly, we find the world often too much a part of us, don't we? And so, so I'm praying that this study will not simply be informative, but that the Lord will also use it to drive us back to Him and back to His Word that we might indeed see some of those vestiges of the world and the flesh and the devil uh, overcome, and um, we will grow in the grace of Christ, uh, even through such a study as church history. And uh, so let's, uh, let's pray together as we, as we begin. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the work of your Son in the church. We're so grateful uh, that by his grace we have been made a part of that grand enterprise of displaying your glory for all the world to see. And this glory is displayed most, most vividly through the church. Though she is filled with sin and scars in many ways, we do pray that you uh, would continue to display the glory of your Son through her uh, as she is shaped and formed into that inhabitable temple that you might dwell in and display your glory through it. We thank you for uh, the work of Christ in our hearts and lives, and we pray that this study here might even uh, draw us away after Jesus as well and encourage us in the things of Christ and the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my plan with this is um, we're going to have... Um, kind of lecture, and then we'll stop for some questions at different points in times. Uh, if I ever totally lose you or whatever, uh, you can do a couple things. You can make a note in some a piece of paper that you're jotting things down in, or you can um, 
uh, you know, raise your hand right then, whatever, and we'll just try to address it as we can. And uh, we are going to record these audio, and then we're going to put the PDFs of the PowerPoints up on the internet. So if you ever aren't here one week, we'll try to have that available to you uh, to use. All right. Um, <clears throat> when we think about uh, church history, I wanted to start with a very encouraging quote. Right. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, soon bears us all away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Now, you might think that's not very encouraging. Well, um, I know it doesn't sound encouraging, but it is encouraging to remember um, the vapor of our life. Uh, our life is brief, and the Lord wants us to remember that. And many men and women and children have come and gone in the history of the world. And it is true, time does uh, pass on. Uh, we've heard the phrase, uh, history repeats itself. Um, that would not be correct. Uh, history moves on in linear fashion, never to repeat itself. Although one of the guys in the book made the comment, he said, well, it may not repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. And uh, there's a lot of things about life and time that seem very familiar. Well, there's a few introductory remarks that I want to make about church history, the study of church history. And basically there are two, and they're in terms of reminders and motivators. Right? I think of these as kind of the what and the why regarding church history. And uh, what are some things that you and I need to keep in mind uh, and clear up as we kind of commence a study, and why should we be concerned with this in the first place? All right. Uh, sometimes when you mention the study of church history, it's kind of like, uh, you know, my goodness, uh, the study of old dusty maps in some room. Uh, everybody just begins to fall asleep and nod off. And I mentioned to several people over the last few months that we're going to be doing a church history study at the church, and sometimes you get that glazed over look. I'm sorry for your people. Uh, sometimes you get that, well, I wish I could be there look. you know. So I hope you're in the latter group. Want to be here. Nobody compelled you to be here necessarily. But I hope we find this profitable. So let's think about some reminders and some, some motivators. By way of reminders, all right, reminders about the study of history in general as we kind of, kind of begin. All right. The first is this, the elusive nature of, of church history. Church history, or history, generally speaking, is elusive. All right, we can't stick history in a uh, in a test tube. Uh, we can't recreate it. All right, you might do a dramatic re representation of historical drama, or maybe some of your favorite movies are historical narrative or some kind of time period setting movie. Uh, but you never really recreate history exactly. All right, you can't just add elements in the test tube, put it in that little spinner thingy, the centrifuge, and it comes out just right. You pour that off, you mix your elements, and out comes the experiment that you, you set out to do. History is rather elusive. It's always just a little bit beyond our grasp. All right? uh, consider also the uninspired nature of history generally. And when you and I read the Bible, we're reading the revelation of God that, 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 that discloses to us in an inspired fashion what happened historically. Right? 
So when we read about the Israelites in Babylon, we can know some of the things that went on there. But if we want to know about the Babylonians, and we begin to read things like you know, the Gilgamesh epic, the flood story uh, that was told by the Babylonians, or Babylonian history or Chaldean history, we're, we're, we're entering the realm of uninspired history. All right? um, we may read about the history of the church in England or the church in America, the history of Baptists or the history of Presbyterians, or the history of the charismatic movement in the early 20th century. And when we do, we, we can accumulate information and we can begin to make assessments but dogmatic assessments become very difficult, all right? Um, so just kind of keep that in mind, and we'll talk more about that here in a minute. Some of these uh, reminders kind of overlap. Think of a third, all right? Consider the difficulty of history, all right? Not only the difficulty of history as in just getting our hands on information, but also the difficulty of doing history as a historian, Right? Now, in some sense, you know, we're all going to be historians in this. We're going, to, we're going to do the study of history. And we're going to want to make some conclusions and some assessments. But immediately, when you begin to study history, one of the things that you have to deal with is your own personal bias that you're going to have toward history. All right? um, we are going to want all the Reformed Baptists to come out with a white hat in the end. All right? And all the other guys have the black hat. All right? Or we're going to want all the Protestants to be the winners and all the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox to be the losers. All right? And it's not always so cut and dry. Um, you're, going to, you're going to talk about the popes, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and you might sit there and think, oh, all the popes, Antichrist. All right? Well, yeah, in a sense, they're all Antichrist. All right? However, there were some quote-unquote good popes. And there were some really bad popes. There were some guys that were popes that were probably even Christians. And there were some popes that were definitely not Christians. All right? And we're going to kind of learn that. And, and so when we go to study history, you go to read about history, you might think, the only people I want to read about are the Baptists. All right? You're like an old landmarker. Because the only true church is the Baptist church. Everybody else is going to hell. And so that's kind of the way some feel. All right? Uh, I had a, a, a friend in high school that was Church of Christ, and we always told this joke that, you know, guy gets to heaven and he walks over here and he sees these people sitting down in pews and they're listening to some guy preach. Oh, that's the Baptist. Over here, there's a bunch of people that are jumping around like crazy people. Oh, that, that's the Pentecostals, right? And then there's a group over here, people gathered behind a white sheet with a candle. And he says, shh, that's the Church of Christ. They don't know anybody else is here. All right? They think it's just them. And so we would always give them a hard time because it was just like the only people going to heaven are us. All right? Well, we can read history like that. And so it can jade us against certain things when we go to read different stories. All right? And it's almost like you form your conclusion about it before you even begin to gather your information. All right? You know, we have it today in the political realm. Oh, he's a Democrat. Oh, He's a libertarian. Oh, he's a Republican. Oh, he's a Trumper. He's a never-Trumper. All right? You know, all this kind of, you know, so once you label it, you don't have to deal with it. You've got to be careful with that with history because you want to make sure you get the information and don't let your bias drive things. Consider the probability of history. Now, I touched on this a moment ago, but let me just say one more thing about it. Um, I'll give you an example. 
In Philemon, and I don't have my uh, remember Philemon, the story of, of Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Paul, the apostle, writes to Philemon, asking him to be merciful to Onesimus. And it says this in, in Philemon 15. All right? uh, for, this is, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Onesimus has become a brother in Christ. All right? And Paul conjectures that maybe the reason Onesimus left is so that he might get saved and then return back to Philemon and be more profitable for him. And Paul uses that little word, perhaps. Perhaps this is why. In other words, Paul doesn't what? Paul doesn't know. Now, when Paul needs to be and can be dogmatic, like any preacher, he wants to be dogmatic. But he also needs to know his limitations. He doesn't know in the grand picture of the providence of God why Onesimus ran away and why Onesimus got saved and why Onesimus is going back. He doesn't understand all the intricacies of those relationships. So he says, perhaps, maybe this is why. So we have to really be careful when we're drawing dogmatic conclusions that go beyond the realm of inspired scripture. All right? Because we just don't know. I, uh, I, you know, I always complain to you all about my papers that I have to grade for students at school. My poor family has to hear it all the time. I come out of my office just screaming and pulling my hair. I don't believe this student. And I get these papers that say things like, and now the definitive conclusion of the universe has been given to this matter. Hear ye, hear ye all. Bow to my greatness. Now, that's slightly exaggerated on some of them. And I'll say, things, I'll say things to them in the notes. Try a little academic humility here. All right? Probably the world has not been waiting on you in 2017 to finally come along and solve the matter. If you have a good case, your readers will be able to tell you that you have a good case. Let the reader decide for you. Don't tell the reader you've solved it. Tell the reader, we have sought to present a case to persuade you to believe thus and so. We've sought to support our thesis. Don't tell them you've done it. Let the reader, let the reader tell you. Or as the proverb would say, let another praise you, not the words of your own mouth. So when we're studying history, we need a little historical humility as well. All right? Um, <clears throat> Well, I kind of touched on this one already too, uh, but I want to read a statement from Haken. Uh, Consider the bias of history, and that really was more with the historian himself. But on pages 8 and 9, there was a, a statement that they had made um, that I want to just kind of read to us here. And again, this touches on some things that I've mentioned, but at the same time, we need to remember that outside the pages of inspired scripture, the study of history is merely a human endeavor. And therefore suffers from the flaws of a fallen world. Carl Truman offers this advice for when, we, for when we read history. Truman says, first remember that history is a narrative of the past constructed on the basis of evidence. Thus, when reading history, always ask, one, what evidence is being cited? And two, remember that the historian has an agenda. That will no doubt shape how he reads the evidence. This does not mean we should view history with total skepticism and discard it as meaningless, but it does mean that we should not believe everything we read. 
There is only one book that is absolutely pure of error in all that it affirms, and that is the Word of God. Psalm 12.6 and Proverbs 35. The Bible is our authoritative guidebook in history, both in recording significant events in the stream of redemptive history leading up to Christ and in teaching us principles about history in general. All right? So with that in mind, when we look at this little book by Haken and Beeky, Haken and Beeky both come with their own what? They both got their own bias, don't they? All right? Beeky is Dutch Reformed. Haken is Reformed Baptist. I picked this for a reason. I like those guys. All right? And I think, generally, it's a good book. All right? However, you need to be aware of that when you go to read things. Uh, when you look at the church history book in plain language by Bruce Shelley, all right? Uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you read the book, um, I, I, I read it again, uh, so, well, I read it several years ago, but I read it again this past week. And um, when, when I got to the very end, the last three chapters... The last three chapters are written by this guy, R.L. Hatchett, who revised it, who is in many ways a moderate Baptist. All right? And you're all thinking, ooh, moderate Baptist. Um, <clears throat> when you get to Hatchett's part, you're going to notice, I think you will, a distinct turn in the book. Um, Shelley is much more favorable. Uh, he, you can tell he's probably on the, on the Protestant side. Hatchet is on the Protestant side too, but he writes with a much more ecumenical spirit. And you'll know what that means as we make our way through the book. But the tone of the book in the last three chapters changes because Shelley died. And in the fourth edition, R.L. Hatchet is the editor, and he wrote himself the last three chapters. That's not that they're not helpful, but you can just tell the tone changes. All right? So, those are just things to kind of keep in mind, some reminders. All right? Uh, questions? Comments? Don't have to have any. It's okay. We've got plenty to do. We'll get you later, Bethy, okay? All right, just a minute. All right. Um, all right, well, let's look at uh, what we might call some motivators or motivations. Why should I be interested in church history. Now, Haken and Beeky give seven in the book. Let's just kind of quickly uh, mention them. Um, number one, history has meaning under God's direction. Number two, history teaches us valuable lessons. And these are just straight out of the book. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. History builds humility and gratitude. Number four, history liberates us from the tyranny of the present. History acquaints us with the wisdom of other Christians. Number six, history offers models for imitation. And those two are very similar, and we're actually going to treat them together. All right? Um, and seven, history stirs us to praise God. You know, when you're teaching somebody else's book, uh, you've got to read it a few times, just understand what they're saying. And you've got to figure out how to communicate their book. And uh, as, I, as I work through that, I thought five and six were just very, very similar. And uh, so we're just gonna we're gonna kind of stick them together. All right. Well, let's begin with looking at uh, the first point that they bring up on why should I be interested in church history? I should be interested because history has meaning under God's direction. All right. Now I, I took from this Acts seventeen. I remember Paul on Mars Hill, 
Paul makes the comment, he says, in Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. And this is pointing to the doctrine of providence. God's oversight of all things. In Him, you and I, all men, live and move and have their being in that close proximity relationship to God. This is true for every person since the dawn of time. It's true for every person from the New Testament age to today. All men, all women, all children move, live, have their being in God himself. So history itself has meaning simply by the fact that God is providential over all things, right? Well, let's kind of unpack this just a little bit, all right? So why does God's direction give meaning to history? All right, several things I drew from the book. And these aren't listed exactly in the book, but these are the four or five that I came, I came out with. First, due to the unity of mankind. So why does God's direction give meaning to history? Because man is, is connected. There's an interconnectivity to, to man. Look in the book, if you have... I keep losing my book. Didn't I just have that book? I did. There it goes. Okay. Uh, On page 6, and if you don't have this book and you want a copy of it, I think we still have a couple copies back there at the back. Um, Yeah, it's on page 5. Bottom page 5. It says, Each human being is part of something much larger. For the entire human race descended from one man and one woman and expanded across the world through the ages. God is executing his sovereign plan for our lives, not as isolated atoms of humanity, but as descendants of our ancestors, parents of future generations, and members of present-day communities and nations. So we have a sense of unity with our fellow man that is especially even more so connected in the church. Uh, if you got your Bible, uh, look in uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. There's a sense in which all of humanity has a sense of connectedness. We all come from one set of parents, all right, Adam and Eve, all right, uh, made out of one blood, it says in Acts chapter 17. But even in the church, there's even a, a, a deeper connectivity. There's a spiritual connectivity in the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, I believe it is. Um, look over there. Yeah. Hebrews 13, verse verse 3. Several in the body had been arrested and put in prison. And he says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated. Since you also are in what? One body. So... History has direction, and church history has direction, or connection, even more intricately so, because we are, we are connected to one another due to the unity of mankind, but in the church, even more closely, 
are we connected? Um, Haken makes a comment, uh, and it may be in that quote I just read. I think it's later on. Uh, Yes, he says that when we read about believers and churches from times past, we are reading our family history, the stories of our brothers and sisters. Uh, A week or so ago, we went down to see my mom and visited her for a while, and we, uh, we, we pulled out old slides. You ever done that, like a family gathering? Uh, maybe your grandparents' kids have, have old slides. You ever seen a slide projector, you guys back there at the back? Not many of you. Mine have, because we just saw it. But uh, <clears throat> So it's a little thing kind of like that, but you have little pictures, and you just one at a time. And, and it was really neat uh, when we are seeing like baby pictures of my sister, and baby pictures of me when I was cute. And so, you know, the family, Nana and Granddaddy, why? There's some connectivity to that, all right? And it's on our family. When you read the history of the church, you're reading about your brothers and sisters in Christ that you've never met, but that one day, by the grace of God, you indeed will meet. A second reason that God's direction gives meaning to history. Due to God's certain activity, yet not always clear purposes in history. I think I just... Got rid of my deal. What happened? Come back this way. All right. Oop, go away. Ephesians 1.11. God works out what? All things after the counsel of His will. So we are certain in all things God is working them out in accordance with His purpose. All right? Down to the minutest detail of our lives that sometimes is brought out in Scripture by uh, scripture saying things like, He has all the hairs on our head numbered. Right? And with some of us, that doesn't take long. Right? Others, it takes a long time. Right? Um, or, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. I remember hearing James Montgomery Boyce speak about this maybe almost 25 years ago, uh, 1993. 24 years ago, I'm sitting in the parking lot after I got off my shift about 11, 11.30 at night at UPS. And I'm listening to James Montgomery Boyce. He comes on the radio. I know James Montgomery Boyce was. All right? But I just finished going through a whole series of sermons by John MacArthur on the doctrine of election. And I just spent some time thinking about this whole issue of God being sovereign. And I'm kind of wrestling through this. And James Montgomery Boyce is sitting there talking about Ephesians 1.11 and other texts like that. He works out all things after the counsel of his will. He says this means when you're standing in front of the shelf at the grocery store and you can't decide whether to buy Tide or All. So look, you just need to pick one. But you need to know the Lord has that all sovereignly worked out. He knows exactly what you're going to get. He decrees all things, whatsoever comes to pass, our confession says, and it says so rightly. Now, I don't want to sit there and stand at the grocery store counter and, you know, do the eeny, meeny, miny, moe kind of thing, or, you know, bow my head in front of the tide, Lord, please give me wisdom to not counter your sovereign will at this moment, as if you could counter sovereign will. Anyway, you get the point, right? Just pick one, all right? And, uh, but what he was trying to say was, God has the most minute details of your life figured out. So when I look through the annals of church history, this is all part of the providence of God. However, I'm not always clear as to what God's purposes are in what I'm seeing. I trust that God's working, but I don't always understand. We're a lot like Job, aren't we? All right? Job just didn't know. All right? 
Um, but he said, though he slay me, yet what? what I'll, I'll hope in him. I'll, I'll trust him. Okay. So church history is going to be like that too. We're outside. Remember, we're outside the inspired uh, revelation of God in Scripture. Uh, sometimes we're told in Scripture why God's doing certain things. Um, but we're kind of out here in the realm where we, we're sure and certain that God is working, but we're not always clear about his purposes. A third thing here. God's direction gives meaning to history. Why? History is the realm in which God has and is working his redemptive work. It's not just the general providence of God, but specifically his redemptive purposes are being fleshed out in history. So the text here points to the reality of the death and the the burial and the resurrection and the appearances of Christ. The work of Jesus is rooted in history. Or we might use Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. All right? Or you think of Luke. What is it? Luke chapter 2 or 3, where it recounts the birth narrative. It talks about in the year that Quirinius was governor of Syria and Augustus. And, and it lays out all these historical indicators of the birth of Jesus. What's it trying to say? The redemptive work of God is being worked out in actual physical chronological time one final thing it is in and throughout history that god is working all things together for the good of his people all right so how does this give how does it give meaning how how do i find meaning from god directing history because he's working out everything for my good every event that transpires in my life is a reminder to me that God rules and he reigns over that very thing I can trust him in all things it's not that all things are good Romans 8.28 does not say all things are good God causes all things to work together even evil things even sinful things, wretched, wicked things things that seem far off course from the will of God God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So it's not all things are good. You've heard that phrase before. Oh, it's all good. No, it's not. It's not all good. All right. Don't, I, I, I would encourage you, don't let that phrase come out of your mouth. It's all good because it's not all good. <laughs> There's a lot of bad things in the world. There's a lot of bad things in your life. All right. Uh, sin is bad. Evil is bad. Uh, cancer is bad. Things in this fallen world outside the garden are bad in and of themselves. But in the broad perspective of God's sovereign purpose, he causes all things to what? To work together for good to his children. And that gives meaning. That tells me when I cross the threshold from apostolic Christianity to post-apostolic Christianity, after Peter and, and Paul and John and those guys are all dead... And I start to meet guys like Polycarp and Clement and Irenaeus and Ignatius and Tertullian and Athanasius. And I meet, I meet Constantine. What an enigma he was. What an interesting guy. We're going to learn about him. And I, and I move into to, to the realms of Ireland with Patrick on mission uh, to the people there. This little, this little short green man that was a missionary. No, he wasn't really short and green. And he was, but he was this missionary to... Uh, you've seen St. Patrick, haven't you? Little Lucky Germs guy. And so, it's not really him. But when I, when, I, when I go into the Middle Ages and I meet men by the name of Thomas Aquinas, who is he? He writes the Summa Theologica, this big gargantuous book that most of us will never read. 
much less pronounce the name of it right. When you move into the time of the Waldensians and, and the Reformation period of Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin, all the way to the present day of the, of the Billy Grahams and the John Stotts and the, oh my goodness, you know, the Joel Osteens and the Kenneth Copelands that come into the, the word faith movement, which is, which is related somehow to this whole idea of Christianity. And we're going to talk about that. How does it relate? All right. Well, it doesn't matter where I find myself along this trajectory. God is, God is ruling over these things. God is indeed at work. And so I can have great confidence that the Lord is giving direction to history, and this gives history itself great meaning. All right. Um, well, we'll just keep those up there for a second. Um, questions? Comments? She always has a question. Yes, Pam. Hebrews 13. Um, I believe it was verse 2. No, 3. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with you, with them. Because we're members of the same body. Right? This is why the scripture says things. This is believers like rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Because we're what happens to you affects me, right. and vice versa. <clears throat> All right, let's go on to number two and uh, see another reason about why we should be interested in church history, and that is because history teaches us valuable lessons. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness and the sins that they committed. And here's our, here's our picture of, I'm sure that's a snapshot they took of Moses and the Ten Commandments. That's probably got to be close. You know, Moses kind of bulging out with the muscles there and throwing the tablets on the ground. And uh, I got it off the internet. So it's got to be what? It's got to be real. You know, I got it off the internet. And so well, let's think about this for a moment. What are some lessons... How does history teach us valuable lessons? All right. Well, several things to consider. Number one, because history is shaped in a sense of continuity. All right. Or by its shaping continuity. Now, in other words, the past has an effect on the present. The present is the culmination of the overseen and providentially guided events of the past. The present didn't just happen, all right? Um, remember uh, that great theological movie? Uh, I don't know why it is that when I, when I digress to great theological movies, I always pick the Catholic ones. There's It's a Wonderful Life and The Sound of Music. We need a good Reformed Baptist movie made. I, I just don't know that we have one of those. And so, you know, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're relegated off to... Uh, bouncing off of those Catholic movies and stuff. But uh, in, in this particular movie, which has got to be my favorite movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. I love that movie. And, um, you know, <clears throat> Ola, <clears throat> remember Jimmy Stewart there in the, in the movie, George Bailey? And old George Bailey thinks, I wish I never what? I wish I'd never been born. Oh, Clarence says you shouldn't say that. Oh, now wait a minute, Joseph, this might be a good idea. And so, he says, okay, you've got your wish. And we all know what happens then when you get your wish. Well, wind blows through the room and 
door opens and guys fall out of chairs, and, guys fall out of chairs and, and all that kind of stuff. And if you haven't seen It's Wonderful Life, I think you just need to, you need to go see that movie. Well, one of the things George, George Bailey realizes is that when he dies, he sequentially kind of works backwards until he gets to his family. He realizes that nothing about his life actually happened. His, his brother dies in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a crash. Or his brother, his brother died, his brother drowned in the water. And uh, so his brother, who grew up to be a war hero, saved a whole bunch of people on a carrier. They all died because his brother wasn't there. It's one of those kind of movies, all right? And, and he, uh, he reaches in his pockets, one of the sad little parts, he reaches in his pocket for these little rose petals that he's taken off the flower of his little girl Zuzu. There are no rose petals because there's no Zuzu. There's no little girl. And so this sequentially begins to unfold, and he begins to realize how his life and his story, if you will, connected with so many other people. Now, it's fictitious, obviously, and all those kinds of things, and it's not a Bible story. And what I'm trying to point out, though, is, is that everything about history builds upon itself to where we are now. All right? God oversees all of history, and there is a continuity and a shaping of the past that shapes and affects the present. We are where we are today as a church because a lot of things have happened over the last 18 years. Good and bad, but here we are. Um, Something else about history teaches us valuable lessons uh, by its, what I'm going to call here, its protective usefulness. There is much to learn from the past and much to hurt us if we do not learn from it. In other words, history has a protective utility or usefulness. So I think, for example, of the heresy of Arianism that rose up in the early 4th century and went on through almost the entire 4th century. Um, Our own confession is greatly indebted to what's called Nicene Constantinopolitan Orthodoxy. Right? We have drawn from the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 385. We have drawn some of our ber- verbiage in our confession from those confessional councils, if you will, that came together to formulate doctrine. And there is a protective usefulness to that history. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a quote on page 11 that I thought was helpful. It says, I would say that church history is one of the most essential studies for the preacher. And I'll add in there for, uh, for the churchman or churchwoman. Were it merely to show him this terrible danger of slipping into heresy or into error without realizing that anything had happened to him. Do you hear that? I mean, being sound in orthodoxy here, it's not a far, it's not a far movement to get completely off the path. Doesn't have to be much. Maybe you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, all right? Uh, Jeff gives me five bucks every time I mention Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, you're behind on your payments a whole lot. (laughs) No, I don't think there's any money coming my way. That's okay. Uh, he's walking along the narrow path all the way to the celestial city. 
And he looks over the wall and it looks nice. And so he goes over the wall and it seems great. And he walks along the path on the other side of the wall. It seems good, but eventually what happens? He's way off course and in a whole lot of trouble. That's the way heresy comes up. It seems good, but um, it's easy to get off path. So how does history teach us valuable lessons by its shaping continuity, by its protective usefulness? And one, one final thing, uh, by its unpredictable directions, all right? Um, <clears throat> the future, where we are, where we're going to be, you know, a few minutes from now, a few months or years from now, um, a few decades from now, is rather unpredictable. This is closely related to what we just talked about. Um, things may seem really certain and solid today that in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years will, will not be. And we don't know what's going to change in the future, right? We can look at the past and we can see, though, and be pretty fairly assured that the way things are right now, it will not be like this forever. Things may change and get better. Things may change and get more challenging and worse. Things may get darker in our country. Things may, God may be merciful and send a great revival. Things may get better. All right? But we certainly are guarded by studying history or guarded from the, de the, the deception that the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. So we're banking on it always being like it is now. But you can't, you can't just bank on that. And history proves that it's, things, things do, in fact, shift. All right? So history teaches various valuable lessons. All right? Comments? Thoughts? Yeah, Jeff? Um, I think I shared it with Paul sent him, I don't normally read it, the Nine March Journal from Mark um, Deborah and several of the writers. Mm -hmm. uh, this last one that came out deals directly with some of these things through missions and mm. what has happened in so many missions. Oh, situations. yeah, yeah. You um, think of closed countries or open countries. The wall came down with old Gorbachev. Yeah. The wall may go back up. You never know. Maybe other walls. And Specifically, he was talking about, this was a guy from Africa, how the prosperity gospel has seeped in just, not overnight, obviously, sure. but how once flourishing, orthodox, strong churches have succumbed to mm -hmm. bad doctrine yeah. because they're getting less and less and less sound and trained yeah, it's true. good guys it's true. going over. And they... Little by little, they get a little bit, you know, something off mm -hmm. as time goes by. And people that don't know doctrine, people that don't know the gospel, aren't strong the gospel, are going over there and leading people. To That's true. Like sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it was well, like, good. Wow. And good. Were, um, if you don't get that one. I do. Yeah, I get um, those. I don't normally read it, but I took time this time just because of what we were watching with the missionary things mm -hmm. and read that. And they're really short. Yeah, the the constant flux of, of history has a great impact on, on missions. And so, well, let's move on to a, uh, to a third here and get this thing to actually work. All right, a third reason to be interested in church history. History builds humility and 
gratitude. All right. Um, I love this uh, this text here. If you can see it, it's not too bright. And I'm sorry, that's our 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 old projector here. It just doesn't do it as bright as the other one. We're going to see if we can get it to work on the next one, on the other machine later. John four thirty seven. For here the saying holds true: one sows and another reaps. All right. Uh, so let's look at two things in particular about this. And they're both kind of, um, well, well, they're supposed to be up there one at a time, but I think they're going to be up there. No, nope, they're going to be up there together. Okay. Um, so the first one, believers who study the history of the church come to understand the debt of gratitude they owe to those who have gone before them. Right? We do stand on the shoulders of other, peop- of other people. Right? One sows... Another reaps, all right? Um, so we already mentioned, for example, uh, the debt that we have, confessionally speaking, to Nicaea and Constantinople in the 4th century, right? Um, Trinitarian formulations. We speak about God as being one in essence and three in person. I mean, people went to the mattresses for that kind of a formulation for several hundred years in the history of the church, Uh, The fact that Christ has two natures, but he's one person. And that might seem to you like, well, yeah, he has a human nature and has a divine nature, but he's not two people, all right? Um, Why was that such a big debate? Well, we're going to talk about that when we talk about a a heresy that came up in the early church known as Nestorianism. Nestorius emphasized the two natures of Christ so much so that they were almost radically separated into being two distinct people. Now, Nestorius denies that he believed there were two people. But the two natures were not united. And so if they're not united, then the conclusion becomes, well, then you have two totally separate natures. So who saves us? The human nature or the divine nature? Or do we have a unified person somehow? Uh, there's a, a heresy that came up regarding the will of Christ. Does Christ have a human will and a divine will, or just a will, or just a divine will? Right? Um, we're going to talk about that monothelitism. It was a heresy that came up in the church. People lose their jobs, sometimes their heads over these kinds these kinds of things. All right. Uh, secondly, believers who study the history of the church are moved to humility, seeing the great variety of people God has used in the past to accomplish his redemptive purposes. I mentioned the landmarkers a little while ago, but every group has its tendency to kind of a landmark idea that it's the only group. All right? We're the only ones. All right? And uh, we, we want to have humility uh, born into our hearts. And the study of history can show you the great debt you owe many others and can, can keep you greatly humble and realizing what, uh, what men have done. We go to study, for example, the evangelical revival. And we're going to want to think that George Whitfield is solely responsible for the Great Awakening. Uh, well, in fact, God is responsible for the Great Awakening. All right? uh, but we're gonna, we're, we'll have a tendency to, to upplay the Whitfields and downplay the Wesleys. All right? um, but the Great Awakening in America... And the, great, and the evangelical revival in England would not have been the same were it not for men like John and Charles Wesley. And uh, as Arminian and Methodists as they were. But they were great men of God used to do amazing things. All right? um, <clears throat> so the need for gratitude and the need for humility, I think history serves those kinds of things 
well. All right. Let's look at another one. All right. Um, nice little road here. Can't really see that either. And it's nice and clear on mine. You can come look at it later. Why should I be interested in church history? It liberates us from the tyranny of the present. Now, this is probably my favorite point of all the points that kind of kind of came out in this uh, in this study. You might recognize this text. Thus says the Lord: Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. All right. Now, let's talk about a couple of things in this, uh, in this section. Number one is this. All right? How does church history liberate us from the tyranny of the present? Number one, by setting us free from the limited perspective afforded by our own personal experience, which we tend to value above all else. I tend to think that my own perspective, my own experience in the Christian life is the best one. All right? If I didn't think it was the best one, I would do what? I'd probably change it. All right? um, <clears throat> well, there's a lot of amazing things that have happened in the past that if we're solely honed in on our own experience, we may, we may completely miss them. There's a quote I want to read to you by a man named P.T. Forsyth. And P.T. Forsyth uh, was a writer in the early 20th century. And he wrote a book in 1916 in the heart of the time period of World War I. And he wrote a book called The Justification of God. Lectures for Wartime on a Christian Theodicy. Uh, theodicy, uh, the, the, the understanding of evil. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And when many people view the evil and suffering in the world, they, they tend to blame God. So Forsyth writes this book, it comes out of these lectures, uh, entitled The Justification of God. He's trying to, to kind of vindicate the righteousness of God. And he makes this comment about history. He says, there are happily still people who ask, what all the long and tragic train of history means. What great thing does it intend? What destiny is it moving to? Where, where its close shall be? To what do all things work together? They ask, what is it all worth at last? What is to be the end of earth's long historic day? Is it sheer oblivion or another morning? Has history a destiny worth all its awful cost? Do all its large lines converge on anything, its throbbing sorrows, its soaring aspirations, its tragedies sordid or sublime, its dreadful conflicts, its splendid achievements, its miserable failures, its broken hearts and ruined civilizations, its conquest over nature and its collapses into it? Do they all curve in some vast trend and draw together to a due close? Is it an end that can ever make them worthwhile? Do they all work together for good and love? What does man mean? Or, he says, are you so happy with the children, your children in particular, or so engrossed in your enterprises 
that you can spare no attention to ask about the movement, the meaning, the fate of the race. Forsyth is saying that we can get so wrapped up in our present that we have no time left to ask questions about the broader perspective of history and where it's all moving. So a study of history or a study of church history in particular can liberate us from the tyranny of the present by setting us free from the limited perspective afforded by our own personal experience, which we tend to value above all else. I just don't have time to mess with all that other stuff. Secondly, by keeping us from making all of our judgments about the present and the future based on our own limited knowledge and leading us into either despair or delusion. If you have the little booklet, um, he gives a couple of examples here on this. I think they're on page 17. He says that studying history helps us make a balanced evaluation of our own times. We can easily become discouraged when our present situation looks grim. It's easy to think that these are the worst of times and that Christ must return soon or all hope will be lost. A review of church history, however, enables us to remember that God's people have always faced extremely dark times only to experience revival in the years that followed. Now back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, back in the days of Hal Lindsey and all the many prophecy conferences, remember the late great planet Earth and the end is coming, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, or 89 reasons why he's coming back in 1989, and fortunately I think that book died after two circulations, all right? Or the prophecy conferences with the big big old banners. I don't know, does John Hagee still have banners behind him on the platform when he preaches about the end times? Great pictures of beasts that look like oversized horny toes. Just, just kind of creepy looking things, all right? And, and that's what everybody wanted to go hear. Everybody wanted to see it. 1992, I think it was, up in Rapid City, South Dakota. We had some big prophecy conference that came to the convention center in town. Flyers all over the place. I didn't go, but I can still remember the conference coming 25 years ago. It was all the rage. We had two guys in our singles Bible study. All they wanted to do was talk about prophecy. John and PK, right? John and PK. Prophecy this, prophecy that. End times this, end times that. It was just exhausting, all right? And, um, but that's what it was all about. And uh, everything's getting worse, everything's getting bad, and we're just in despair. The only thing that can fix it is the rapture. If Jesus would just come back, he'll fix it all. Well, you know, if 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 we're only living, listen, if we're only living in our cubicle, then we might rightly think that way. But if we stop and stand up and peek over the top of the cubicle... And see, there's 2,000 years of church history behind us where the same kinds of things have happened. We're not the first age that got into the millennial craze of prophecy conferences and the end is here. It's happened numerous times in 2,000 years. And everybody sold everything, dressed in white sheets, moved up to the top of a mountain and said, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And he didn't come back. And they had to go back down and buy new clothes, I guess, walk around in white togas forever, all right? You know, it, it's happened over and over and over. And we'll see some of these people through our study of church history. And we have no reason to despair. Yes, Jesus is going to come back. But I don't know the time or the hour, right? I don't know the days. I don't know the seasons. 
So I'm supposed to be doing what? Seeking his kingdom. Pursuing him. Nor do I want some sense of delusion regarding church history. Uh, He goes on here to say, And ignorance of history leaves us vulnerable to the delusion of too much optimism as we become blind to our weaknesses, the weaknesses of ourselves and our churches. Um, Those are the things to say there. Let's just, one more on this. How does the study of church history liberate us from the tyranny of the present? Number three, by providing for us a Christian view of history which helps us assess should be assessed, and that's spelled wrong. The present in light of God's overarching plan of redemption. All right? God is moving toward a conclusion in what we call history. It's simply his providential design. And we need a, a Christian view of history. Thinking in terms of there's an overarching uh, sometimes today it's referred to as a, as a meta-narrative, or the narrative of a story, and then you have a meta-narrative that holds the whole story together. If you want a more simple approach to that, think of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Remember that? If you've got one of those, Sally Lloyd-Jones has written this little bitty Bible for kids. It's a great little thing, and uh, some of y'all have those, and uh, don't, don't raise your hand, Tate, if you, if you have that. But you know, The girls might have that. They have, they have one of those. Emily has one, baby. Hannah, you got one of those? Okay, somebody's got one. And, well, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it takes all those stories of the Bible, like, you know, creation and the flood and Abraham and Moses and the Exodus and all these different kinds, Daniel in the lion's den, all these stories that you heard when you were a little kid, but I heard of them when I was a child as, as isolated stories, little blocks, no real connection. But the meta-narrative of the Bible, and the Bible has one, it's this glorious thread going through all of the Scripture. Some of you may have heard of the old sermon by W.A. Criswell years ago. He called it the scarlet thread of redemption. I don't know if I can say it like Criswell did. And he saw this scarlet thread moving from creation to the cross, holding all the Bible together. Now, one of the problems with that is he saw this anywhere he saw the color red, you know, it was like an allegory for the scarlet thread of redemption. The cord that, that uh, Rahab lets out of the, the rope that it, Rahab lets out of the, uh, the window, the wall of Jericho. I think it was red or whatever. So he sees the blood of Jesus there. I'm not saying you see the blood of Jesus everywhere you see the color red. But what he was trying to get at was there's something holding all these stories together. And that's that glorious overarching plan of redemption. All right, let's move on. We need to go, <laughs> and I'm going to get in this problem every week, I think. Um, why should I be interested in church history? It acquaints us with the wisdom of other Christians. You know these guys, all right? It's not Larry, Curly, and Moe. guy in the middle there, I think it's Constantine. Uh, some guy that drew a picture years ago kind of makes me think of what artists would often draw Jesus to look like. But I think this is Constantine. And these guys around him are some of the Nicene fathers, if you will. And you can see the little, uh, the little writing there at the bottom. And uh, basically what that says is, Pistuis, uh, I believe, Hena and one, and then under the hand is God, and this is Pateron, and that's father of Patera, and this is Pantakrata, which means almighty, all right? 
So I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and then I can't even, it's too small, uh, what it would be is maker of heaven and earth. Uh, by the end, you can see the Nicene Creed coming out there. And in the bigger picture, you can look that up online. It's got the whole text of it down here at the bottom if you want to work your way in the Greek there. All right? But other people, these are the 4th century guys. Uh, this is the Westminster Assembly. All right? uh, this is uh, a picture of some of my buddies, 18th century Baptist, particular Baptist mission guys, all right? with a couple of general Baptists thrown in right there and right there. And um, so there are a lot of wonderful things that we can learn from others throughout history, wisdom of the ages. And then the next slide here gets at the next point, which I kind of blended these two things together. Uh, there is the idea of, uh, of the, that's a, boy, the projector does not give that. That's Daniel, and there's a bunch of lions, right? Um, so they're models for imitation, all right? And... Um, so when we consider uh, the idea of how does history offer us models for imitation, sometimes it does so encouragingly, sometimes cautiously, humbly, but also necessarily. Now, encouragingly, what they tried to bring out in the book was like in Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12. It holds out to us what we often call the hall of faith, those who have gone before. Hebrews 12.1, being surrounded by such a great cloud of of witnesses and encourages us by showing people who have gone before. Cautiously, though, it tries to remind us things like that the best of men are what? They're men at best, right? We don't want to make too much of, of men. There are several quotes you can look at there, too. Humbly, when we begin to think about our heroes in the faith, we don't want to be uh, guilty of, uh, they, they, he referred to wearing hagiographic spectacles. Hagiography is this kind of overinflated writing where we, uh, we tend to not look at the real flaws of our heroes. Right? Um, or you write a paper, a biographical paper on someone, and all you highlight is all the wonderful things that they did. Right? Uh, this is what often happens, for example, at the eulogy. All right? You know, old Uncle Bob right? Beat his 18 wives, drunk himself under a bus. But somehow when he died, he was a saint, you know, and everybody in the family loved him. And you're thinking, I don't think I'm at the right place. I'm at the wrong funeral, all right? No, 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 this really was your Uncle Bob. It was a side of him that nobody ever saw, all right? But, you know, we wanted to bring it out anyway. So we, we hired somebody to write a eulogy for him, all right? Um, well, one more thing, necessarily, all right, by way of necessity. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and what? Imitate their faith. It's a great biblical mandate for biography. There's a great quote in the book on page 25. You can look at that um, by uh, Ian Murray and, uh, about the importance of biography. So maybe, maybe you're wondering, how do I plug into the study of church history? We're going to have this here for the summer, right? But maybe get a good biography on somebody. Get a good biography on, the ladies are doing this little one here on women, eight women of history. Is that what it's called? Eight women of faith, all right? There's other books like that. Uh, there's a series of books that Reformation Heritage Books sells uh, dealing with biographical studies, like for your kids. They can read about or Banner of Truth has a lot of wonderful biographies. And as you read about the stories of these people, my heart 
is often warned and encouraged and challenged and humbled. And so I'd encourage you to pick up a good, a good biography. All right, one, one last slide. Why be interested in church history? Well, history stirs us to the praise of God. Now, this is actually a picture that I took last summer uh, in Tewksbury Chapel in uh, Tewksbury Abbey in, um, in the, just a little bit north of Bristol in the west of England. And it's a beautiful abbey that was built in the 11th century uh, during the Anglo-Saxon period. And um, so I got, a, I got a better picture of it on here for you. But let me just give you a few things here. How does, how does the study of history stir us to the praise of God? A couple things, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. All right. Number one is this. In the study of history, we discover that all of history finds its significance and its source in God alone. Somebody could probably quote Romans 11.36 for us. From him and through him and to him are what? All things. Everything is from, through, and to our great God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 says this about Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In this brief text, it shows us that Christ is the source, the agent, the possessor, the sustainer, and the reconciler of all creation. The flow of all history is summed up in the person of Christ. Secondly, secondly, we find in the course of the study of history that Christ is the Lord of all history. All things point to Him. We find that um, <clears throat> Meryl uh, D'Amblique, I don't know how to say his name, he's a Frenchman, um, a, history, a history writer of the English Reformation. He made the comment, he said that God ought to be proclaimed in history. The history of the world ought to be distinctively the annals of the government. No, that's wrong. Page 29 of the book. Quote that wrong. God ought to be proclaimed in history. The history of the world ought to be distinctively the annals of the government of the sovereign king. That's all history is. It's just the record of the work of God. This is what God indeed has done. Jesus is Lord over all history. Third, in the study of history, we come to learn and be encouraged in the reality that all of history is being sustained and directed by God at every point. Jesus says at various times in Revelation that he is the what? He is the Alpha and he is the omega, he is the beginning and the end. And these are like brackets that mean that everything in between is also ruled and sustained and directed by him as well. And a fourth thing to consider is that in the study of history, viewed through the lenses of God's word, 
we see God making good on all of his covenant promises. Also on page 29 in the book, uh, we read this statement. In studying history, therefore, we learn to say, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And that did not stop at the close of the Bible. We claim that every day. Knowing that God, knowing what God has done in the past lays the foundation for trusting Him in the present for the future. We rest our faith upon God's promises and acts in the Bible, while church history confirms and strengthens that faith when we view it through the lenses of God's Word. And I thought regarding each of these, that in the study of history, the first one here, we discover that all of history finds its significance and source in God alone. In this, we praise God for his weightiness or his significance or his glory. And secondly, we find in the course of study of history that Christ is the Lord of all history, all things ruled by him. Thus, we praise him for his sovereignty. In the study of history, number three, we come to learn and be encouraged in the reality that all of history is being sustained and directed by God. Thus, we praise him for his providence. And in the study of history viewed through the lenses of God's word, we see him making good of all of his co- good on all his covenant promises. We praise him for his faithfulness. This is how the study of history ought to spur in your heart worship. Worshiping God for his greatness, worshiping God for his sovereignty, worshiping God for his providence, and worshiping God for his faithfulness. I, I have come to see in my life that the study of history is a great impetus to worship. It's not something disconnected from the way I think and the way I live my life. Most things that I read are connected somehow with history. And I hope and pray that over the coming months you will also adopt a a view of history that is encouraging to your heart in your pursuit of Christ, not just pursuit of information. Uh, let me pass something out to you uh, as we as we go here. Charter, uh, can you help me over here? And uh, um, <clears throat> this is kind of a uh, a syllabus, if you will. And uh, it will serve as our guide over the course of the next three months. And I want to make sure everybody has one. Just say a couple things about it. Um, You can see the three texts there at the top. The last one, Shelley's book, that is the main text that we're going to be going through. And again, I would really encourage you guys to get a copy of this and try to read it this summer. Uh, I think on average, we're going to have about 40 pages a week. Some weeks will be less, some weeks maybe more. Um, You can see the dates lined out there. So beginning next Sunday on the 4th, we're going to be talking about chapters 3 to 6 in this book. There's also the Little Church History 101 book. And uh, that's this one here. If you have a copy of that, um, I, I tried to put the corresponding chapters in there as well. 
So you can, you can look at that if you don't have this or, or just look at both of them. Um, one of these weeks in the summer, I don't know which week, uh, we're probably going to run out of town for a little trip uh, as a family, but I don't know when it's going to be, so we'll talk about that later, and then we'll, we'll push it all back a week. So we'll probably go into the first week of September, but uh, keep that with you in your book, your Bible, and um, start reading. So, <laughs> All right, yes, Pam. Uh, on all of his covenant promises. Yeah. And like I was mentioning earlier, uh, if, uh, you know, you don't want to kill your hand while you're taking notes or something, we will put these PDFs up on the web so you can, you can look at those if you, if you want to. And so, all right. Didn't have as much time for questions today as I'd hoped, but uh, hopefully you'll come with some of those in the coming weeks and we'll have, we'll have more time. Well, let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We pray that you'd help us as we make our way through this information. Uh, Teach us about the work of Christ. Teach us about his church. Teach us about how, indeed, he rules and reigns over it. With all of her scars and all um, all of her marks, all of her sins and transgressions, Uh, You have indeed proven yourself faithful. So we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we walk through uh, these fields of history, trusting that in all of it, you rule and reign and you fulfill your purpose. The purpose that Jesus indeed said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. Father, we pray your blessing on our lives this day in Jesus' name. Uh, We just need to straighten up generally. The chairs can stay like they are. They are out of school for the summer, so we don't need to rebuild everything. We just need to kind of clean up.
take on. Oops.